Well, I would ask that you would turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. 1 Samuel, chapter 1. We began just last Sunday morning a new, very brief series of studies. I haven't figured out exactly where it's going to end, but on the life of Hannah, which is just another way of saying we're going to be in the first and second chapter of 1 Samuel over the next couple Sunday mornings. Last Sunday, as we read, and we will read this in a minute, as we read verses 1 through 8 and studied those verses, we learned the following. And even as I did a prelude to those verses, we learned the following. That the context in Israel at that point in time was not good. Politically, they were being oppressed on and off by the Philistines, and there was no king. They needed a king. Spiritually, idolatry was prevalent And even the true religion, people who would go up to the temple of God, who wanted to worship Jehovah, true religion was being corrupted by Hophni and Phinehas. Faithful priests were needed. And the word of God was rare in those days. A faithful prophet was needed. And then when we read about this woman, Hannah, we read about her situation. She had a barren womb, and she had a bitter rival, we learned. And her sorrow, we studied her sorrow. Her sorrow was due to her barrenness. And it was due to this rival. And her sorrow was extreme. This was a woman who was weeping and not eating. And the main point of that first sermon was that in all all the chaos, and all the tears, and all the weeping, and all the distress, and all that seemed to be going so bad in Israel at that time, God was providing a context for divine change which was going to be brought about both for the nation and for Hannah. And also, God was going to use Hannah herself to bring about this divine change. So follow with me as I read verses 1 through 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God which lives and abides forever. Take heed how you hear. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, sorry, Joraham, I did that last time too, Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. If you have your outlines in front of you, you know that the title of the sermon is called The Vow. Sounds like a Nicholas Sparks book, right? Doesn't it? The Vow. <laughs> uh, but well, this will have an even greater ending than any of those books, I trust you. I, I, I tell you. Let me ask you this. Have you ever made a vow to God? Have you ever made a vow to God? Have you ever thought about making a vow to God? Have you ever known someone who has made a vow to God? Do you even know what a vow to God is? Today we're going to learn about vows and a vow made by a woman who is at her breaking point and who took extreme measures to remedy her situation because she cared too much to let it carry on. Well, we just read 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to look at this under really just two main headings. First, the immediate context of her vow. The immediate context of the vow, verses 9 and 10. We read in them, and you could say in a sense, and I'm going to go back and read verses 7 and 8. Really, the immediate context is these verses. That Hannah, at the end of verse 7, it says, Hannah wept and would not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, asks her, you know, listen, I know you're, basically, I know that you don't have any kids, but what about me? Well, it didn't help too much. Verse 9, they're at, they're, they've gone up to eat and drink in Shiloh, but clearly Hannah has not eaten and drunk, right, based on what we read in verse 7. And it says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. See, here we have, first of all, the, the immediate context of the vow. We have Hannah's condition, her condition. She's not eating. She's so deeply distressed. She's so affected by her situation that she's willing to forego food. She probably doesn't even desire food. And I'm sure some of you have even in, have been in this type of emotional situation. You're so distressed. You're so agitated. You're so concerned. You're so worried. Food is an afterthought. I mean, even though we cannot survive many days without it, something that is so fundamental to our existence is put on the shelf. It becomes a side issue because of the agony of our soul or maybe the, the difficult trials that we are going through. Emotional and spiritual issues can influence you physically in many ways. And Hannah is not eating, but she's also weeping in anguish. We studied this last time. This is, this is the crying of a woman who doesn't just have a little wet spot on her eyes. You know, sometimes when somebody who's embarrassed that they're crying... They try to cover it, right? But you can just see right at the corner of their eyes, there's one little tear going down. They're like, oh, I'm okay, you know, nothing. That's not Hannah's crying. This is the heaving of the chest. This is the tears pouring down her face. This is the, the creating of a puddle in front of her. 
This is a woman who is weeping bitterly. Crying. This is a, a woman who's at the end of her rope. Emotionally, she's broken a little bit. Describes her as having a bitter soul. She's deeply distressed. She's in bitterness of soul. This situation colors everything. She Forget, like we said, forget basic things like eating. All her life is under this cloud. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation like this. You can't get up in the morning. You can't eat breakfast. You can't go about your daily activities without this hovering over you. And that's what Hannah, that's the situation Hannah finds herself in. Life is covered by this perpetual cloud. Well, that's her condition. We come secondly under this to her resolve. Her resolve. She decided to do something. She decided to pray. That's what we find her doing in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord. Now, this is not insignificant. The fact that Hannah decides to pray is not insignificant. How many times do we feel the bitterness and the agony and the distress of soul? How many times do we ourselves feel anxiety and worry and we're distracted and we don't pray? Hannah goes and prays. We might not even do anything. We might be paralyzed in our life. Here Hannah resolves she's going to do something. She's going to pray. Now she could have continued to Preston down and it's possible that she had. Now I don't think this is the first time Hannah ever prayed. But it's possible that she had been and let herself get in a situation where for a while she had been to Preston down and maybe had possibly neglected prayer a little bit. We don't know for certain. But in her mind, this situation has to change. It's come to a breaking point. And this situation has to change. And that means that she has to pray. This is, her, this is her number one resolve. I have to go and I have to pray. She's going to do serious business with God. She's going to wrestle with God. This isn't Hannah going up and saying... You know, Lord, um, you know, if you can give me a son, great. And by the way, uh, you know, I have my back aching and, um, you know, my kids were complaining this morning. Help me to get through that. No, I mean, this is a woman. Again, she's not uttering words out loud because Eli didn't hear any words. But if you heard the cries of her heart, this is a woman who with intensity and agony of soul and earnestness is pouring out her complaint to God. She's, she's doing serious business with God in her prayers. But she's also praying because of what she believed about God. Now, listen, there are plenty of people in this world, they're in distress, they're in agony, they're depressed, they're despondent, and they might even be Christians at times. And they don't have anybody to turn to. They think nobody cares. And that only adds to their grief. That only adds to their trouble. Hannah was one who believed, I will have an audience with God. One author puts it this way. One commentator puts it this way. She addresses Yahweh of hosts, cosmic ruler, sovereign of every and all power, and assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman from the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. Isn't that amazing? She's going with faith, 
Who am I? Lord, I am the type of person that you will look upon. I am the type of person that you will turn your ear and listen to. She believed whatever her obscurity, however insignificant she might have been in the eyes of the world, God will hear me. She had faith that when she went to pray, she believed what Peter would write so many years later, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. She believed God cares about me. God cares for me. So I am going to go and cast my cares upon him. My dear friend, when have you carried a great burden? When you have carried a great burden, is this the attitude you have? I'm going to pray. I need to pray. I'm going to resolve to pray. I'm going to set aside time to pray. Or are you engaging in that foolish activity which perpetuates your trouble and your depression? You just carry it upon yourself. Do you have an attitude that is willing to let this continue? Or do you have an attitude that says, this has to change and so I'm going to God with my burdens? Another way of putting the question is this way. Have you ever done serious business with God in prayer? Do you know what it means to be tired? I wonder, have you ever prayed in such a way that you've actually been physically tired after you've prayed? Or prayed in such a way that you are emotionally drained after you pray? If not, I wonder if you've ever known what it means to do serious business with God. Hannah would have walked away from the situation drained. No question about it. I mean, exuberant in her spirit. We're going to learn about that later on. She's, she, she walks away without tears. But she would have been drained. I'm sure, like, I got to go to bed early. The business I did with God, the work I did with God at Shiloh today, I am drained. I got to go to bed. Is this the action you take? Too often we think, we worry, we fret, we stress when we should be praying. Now that brings us secondly to the vow, the vow itself. When we read about this vow in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, what is a vow? And I, I got to go through this because it's not like you turn every page of scripture and you come across a vow. And frankly, I don't think that we have thought about vows a lot in our day and age, especially among our, the Christians that I've been associated with. Maybe it's different. Maybe you know all about vows, but I'm going to assume that we need some instruction on vows. A vow is a solemn promise. And one man writes this, surveying the biblical testimony concerning vows is eye-opening. There are two main passages that I'm going to use that explain vows. Turn with me back to Numbers chapter 30. Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to turn to two passages that just shed some light on what vowing is, what they are, what they are not. Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, and we read as follows. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible. Numbers 30, verse 1, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, 
or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So pretty simple and straightforward there, right? What do we learn? A vow is something made by men. If a man vows a vow, this is something initiated by men. A man makes the vow. A vow, according to this passage, is something made to God, though. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, so a vow is made by man, but it's made to the Lord. But also a vow is not something required. God isn't coming here saying, now I command you to make vows. He's saying, if a man makes a vow. Meaning vows are completely voluntary. God is not even telling people here that they should be making vows. He just says, if you make a vow, vows are not required. It's comparable According to this passage, to swearing an oath to bind yourself to an agreement. God says, if a man makes vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, right? And they seem to be kind of parallel thoughts here. So vowing a vow is comparable to swearing an oath to God to bind yourself to something. But also according to these verses, we learn about vows that they need to be performed exactly how you said. So they might be voluntary, But God makes it very clear, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So it's as if God is writing down, okay, you said this, and you said this, and you said this. Whatever you said to me in the vow, you better go and do that. You got to fulfill it exactly. And nothing, at least in these passages, is mentioned regarding God's requirement. So God doesn't say here that a vow necessarily requires God to do something. There could be a situation, according to this passage, where a person just takes it on themselves to go and vow a vow to God. And they're not necessarily saying, God, you have to do this, or you have to do that, or because you did this or that. So vow doesn't necessarily require something on God's part. That's the first passage. Turn with me one book over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23. We have another passage that helps helps us understand vows and vowing. This actually is going to be our Old Testament reading tonight. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. We read this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So we have a lot, very similar themes here in these verses compared to the book of Numbers, right? They're made by men voluntarily. It's emphasized in this passage. You don't have to do it. If you do it, it's something made by men voluntarily, and it's made again to God. Verse 22. Once made, it's required of God. You, so you can't back out of it saying, well, it's voluntary, so I'll just, I don't have to do it then. No. If you make a vow, you have to, you must. There is a requirement to fulfill it in the presence of God. And not only that, this passage says you need to do it pretty quickly. Don't delay in fulfilling it. So you can't procrastinate. Well, I haven't broken my vow yet. I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. No, it says here, you shall be careful to do it, and you shall not delay fulfilling it. And again, nothing is mentioned of any requirement on God's part, as though, God, you need to do this in order for me to vow. It's just a voluntary vow, one-sided here. 
This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. These are just some passages that give us general instructions regarding vowing. And we noticed in both of them, vows are not required by God. I'm going to emphasize this. Vows are not required by God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we read the following. When you make a vow to God, in other words, you don't have to, but when you do, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And this passage and the previous two passages we looked at both underscore the fact that when we speak of vows, we are speaking of something that's not required by God. Okay? The, the writer to Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, leaves us a way out. It's better not to vow. So you could say, you know, I'm just not going to do it. And that is, in a sense, a legitimate way to go move forward in life. But why is it significant that it's not required by God? It's significant because of this. You can't tur- turn around and say, well, you know, just voluntary. No one has to do this. So that means it's not a big deal. If I fulfill it, if I don't fulfill it, it doesn't really matter. No. God takes vows very, very, very seriously. If we voluntarily take it upon ourselves to make a vow, he says, the author in Ecclesiastes says, he has no pleasure in fools. He's not going to be happy with a person who walks into a vow willy-nilly, treats it as something insignificant, lackadaisically goes about making the vow, and then doesn't really think it's a big deal to fulfill it. God says, that person's a fool. Are you so foolish as to think that maybe God didn't hear you make the vow? You know, it's interesting. Kids, my kids are great. But when you're the pastor's kids, what happens, right? I mean, you, you draw so many illustrations. Maybe I should say this. I'll reflect back on my childhood. This came from my parents, right? But, you know, kids are easy, they're quick to hear promises made by parents, right? I mean, listen, you've got to be careful what you say if you're a parent. Kids will remember it. Mom and Dad, you said this, and you said that, and, right? And God's the same way. You make a vow, he hears it. He, 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 he caught on to it. He's aware of it. He's not going to forget it. Are you so foolish to think God didn't hear? Or are you so foolish to think that God doesn't care about spoken words? As though, oh, I don't really care what comes out of the mouths of my people. They can say whatever they want, want, whatever they want. Truth and consistency and faithfulness are not things I value a lot. God has no pleasure in fools. Are you so foolish as to think that God doesn't care about a promise? I mean, our whole religion is built upon the promises of God. God cares deeply about promises. Are you so foolish as to think you can actually play with God? Here, God, I'm going to give you this. Ah, well, let me take that back. Oh, why don't I give you this? Okay, fine, I promise this, but, but I'm going to substitute it with this. It's almost as good. I mean, are we playing games with God, with our vows? God makes it very clear. If you promise this, you better give this. Now, vows are voluntary. And if you're like me, part of me is like, oh, listen, I'm staying away from vows. Right? You're, you're tempted to think, I don't want to get involved. This is too serious. <laughs> and that's the way some people think about marriage vows, isn't it? Right? Unfortunately. Like, you know what? It's too serious. Divorce, God hates. I'm just going to stay away from it. 
That's not a good, that's not a biblical perspective, by the way. But don't think that just because it's voluntary, it's not a big deal. And remember that they clearly existed among the Israelites, right? They're voluntary, and I think I have this in your notes, but they clearly existed among the Israelites. We know this because otherwise no laws would be passed regarding them. <laughs> okay? God is assuming the people of God will at times be making vows. This is something that was existing. The Israelites, the people of God under the Old Covenant, at least some of them, didn't have an attitude of, give me the least I can do and I'll do it. I don't want to do more than what's required. If vows aren't required, then just chuck that book out the window. I don't want to deal with it. You know, that's, that's the way some of us have, some some students have when they're in school, it's like, listen, the teacher says, well, if you want to do extra work, you do this. Just tell me what I need to do to pass. The Israelites weren't like that. They didn't have to vow, but they were vowing, at least at times. Now, there are some examples of vows. Turn with me through the pages of Holy Scripture as we look at some vows that people made. First of all, in Genesis chapter 28, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 28. Kind of a history. We're not looking at every vow that's made. We have Genesis chapter 28 and verse 20. This is, from, from what I can tell, the first vow. Genesis chapter 28, verse 20. We're not going to be able to look at the whole context. We read this. When, then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear... So that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So he's making a vow. Nothing, God's not telling him, listen, you have to come make this vow to me. It's made voluntarily. He's binding himself by an agreement. He says, I will, I will have you be my God. That's the promise he's making. Lord, if you do these things, then I promise that you will be my God. Now, in this case, he is requiring something from God, isn't he? And it shows that vows, they don't require it, but they often are asking God to do something. In other words, I'm not bound to keep my part of the vow unless, Lord, you do this. And Jacob makes it very clear. If you will be with me, and if you will keep me in this way that I go, and if you will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Lord, if you meet those requirements, if you fulfill that in my life, then you will be my God. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Again, we're back in Numbers, the fourth book of the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 21. This is now the Israelite nation making a vow. The Israelite nation making a vow. And we read in verse 2, And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. So again, very similar thing. They are, they are making it voluntarily. They are calling on God to do something. And they promise to God to do something if he does his part of the agreement. They did require something of God. But they bound themselves to do something for him if he fulfilled that end. Now we have another one. Jonah. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. You have people who, even these, these sailors in Jonah chapter 1. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I always have this fear as a pastor that I'm going to turn to one of these old minor prophets and I'm going to be flipping around for five minutes. <laughs> 
Uh, we have Jonah chapter 1, verse 16. If you remember the story, God gr- created this great storm. The sailors and Jonah, they all thought they were going to die. Although Jonah probably didn't because he knew that he was going to go to Nineveh. And God delivers them. And it says this, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 16, after they throw Jonah into the sea and the sea ceases from its raging, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, this is interesting because it's in response to something God has already done. In other words, they experienced God's salvation. God had done a wondrous thing for them. This vow is really a response of gratitude for the deliverance that they had experienced. And it's implied, now we don't know what the vow is, but the vow clearly was, Lord, because you've delivered me, I will go do this for you. We don't know what the vow is, what the content of the vow was. Maybe it was, you will be my God. Maybe it was, I'm going to do such and such. But they made vows to to the Lord. And this is looked upon favorably. And all the vows we've looked at, they were looked at favorably. God answered uh, Jacob's request. He fulfilled the, the, the requirements for Jacob's vow. He delivered the Israelites in Numbers 21. And he, and he saved them from their enemies and gave them victory over their enemies. And here, this is put in terms of their repentance. Part of their repentance was making vows. You almost get the sense that their repentance wouldn't be complete without the vows being made. So it's putting vows in a very good light here. Now, you might be thinking in your mind, okay, this whole vowing thing, Old Testament. That was like, that was another religion. To the new covenant people of God, are we really making vows? I mean, is that something that we should even be thinking about? Well, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, we read about Paul's vow. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Now, Paul knew what he was doing. You know, if Paul thought that's Old Covenant, we shouldn't be doing that as a New Covenant people of God, he wouldn't have done it. But we have in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, and we read the following. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. As Sincria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So Paul himself, now we don't know all the details of this vow, but the New Testament writers wouldn't have had to explain everything involved in the vow because they know their people have the Old Testament. So when it comes to simply saying he was under a vow, it means Paul voluntarily made a vow to do something for God. And he was making sure he carried it out to the T. So it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. It's not something irresponsible. right? All the examples we had here, these are people who had a spirit-filled mind, who had good heads on their shoulders, who were doing something that is pleasing to God. Not something you'd say, oh, that was dumb. I mean, now you've got to fulfill it. Should have made that vow. I would ask that you turn with me in the back of your blue Trinity hymnal to the Confession of Faith. The Confession of Faith actually has a paragraph that deals with making the making of vows. And it's on page, it's chapter 23, and I'll find that page in a minute. It's page 600. And 83, in the, black, in the back of your blue Trinity hymnals, and we'll read this together. We don't do this often. But chapter 23 deals with lawful oaths and vows. And in the fifth paragraph of this chapter, we'll read this. And I'd ask that you would re- re- read with me, and I'll lead the congregation in reading this. Uh, chapter 23, paragraph 5. A vow which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone 
is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. But popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Now, obviously, they are reacting to some of the the vows that were being pushed upon the people of God, forced upon them, telling them they need to do these types of things if they're going to be a better Christian. But the first, basically, phrase is there. A vow which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. And that's what we find in the word of God. A vow is a solemn promise to do something for God. Now, Moving on, to whom does Hannah vow? And the answer is she vows to the Lord of hosts. If you turn back with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 1, she's vowing to the Lord of hosts. She says in verse 11, or it says in verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Now, the word hosts can be understood generically to refer to a massive company. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Right? All, all the stars and the planets, all the hosts were finished. Exodus 12, verse 41, And it came to pass at the end of 430 years that all the hosts of the Lord came out of Egypt. All the Jews, right? They were exiting Egypt. Over a million of them at that time. They're leaving Egypt. The hosts of the Lord, a, a massive company. And in 2 Chronicles 18, verse 18, we read, Then Mich- Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. So this host of heaven would be referring to the angelic host. right? Jesus, Remember Jesus said when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'd, he could call down all those legions of angels. right? There's a whole host of spiritual beings that serve God. So the word hosts can be understood generically as a massive company. But when applied to the Lord of hosts, the meaning is a little bit more specific. One man defines it this way. It teaches that God is all-powerful and is master of all spirit beings in heaven and all created beings on earth. So when we say the Lord, he's a Lord of hosts, it means... He has infinite resources at his disposal. He possesses all power and can call upon anything in order to do his will. It's used to convey a sense of God's greatness and his resources and the great resources of his kingdom. The forces that he has at his disposal to do his bidding and to accomplish his purposes, they are innumerable. The Lord of hosts. Now, for those of you who have been with us in Sunday evenings, you know that we're studying the book of Haggai. And Haggai references the Lord of hosts more than any other book in terms of its concentration. In two chapters, the the amount per chapter is immense. And we spent time dealing with God being the Lord of hosts. But it's interesting that the first person to ever refer to God as the Lord of hosts is Hannah. The first person... To ever refer to the Lord, to ever address the Lord in this manner as the Lord of hosts is Hannah. In other words, she's not borrowing somebody else's prayer. She doesn't say, well, I know, I've heard the priest in the temple pray this way, so I'm just going to kind of use his words. You could say this, she's making up her own title for God.
Hannah was drawing upon her understanding of God. She's saying, Lord, this is what I've learned from you. This is what I understand about you and your word. I know who you are. You are the Lord of hosts. And why does she use this title? This is the God that she needed right then and there. She needs a God who can work wonders for her. A God who can accomplish that which seems to be impossible in her life and in her womb. She needs the Lord of hosts to act on her behalf. My dear friend or child of God, is this the way, sorry, is the way that you address God in prayer a reflection of your understanding of God? Or would somebody listen to your prayers and say, do you even know the God that you're praying to? Tell me about God. Tell me about your God. What can he do for you? What kind of God is he to you? What does the Bible say about your God? Hannah would have countered with those questions. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of hosts. And that's why I'm praying to him about this situation, because only God who has innumerable resources at his disposal can do something like like this for me. And so this is why it's incumbent upon each of us to study the word of God, so that we know the God that we pray to. So Hannah vows to the Lord of hosts. What does she vow? Well, she says this, if. Hannah, in this case, is requiring something of God. She uses these three phrases. Look upon the affliction of your maidservant, if you do that, Lord. If you remember me and do not forget me. And if you give your maidservant a male child. It's all at the beginning of verse 11, in the middle of verse 11. If. Now, God doesn't stand back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just tell me to do things. I do things when I want to do things. You can't try to force me to do what you want me to do. Isn't it interesting? God wants to be tested by his people. God wants his people to ask of him great things. We have not because we ask not. Jesus puts it in those very simple words. We have not because we ask not. God wants his people to come and seek his face and petition him for great things. The things that don't take place in this world because the people of God don't ask for them. Let's just say how it is. If Hannah didn't ask, if Hannah didn't require something from God, she never would have gotten a child. God was waiting for her to say, God, I want you to do this for me. And God says, yes, I will. God, she's not commanding God, but she is certainly petitioning God with strong requests. And this is not something insignificant, what she's telling God. She then goes to God and says, Lord, I will give you, right? She says, then, if you do these things for me, then I will give him to the Lord. And probably, when she says there, um, and no razor shall touch his head, it's very probable, or possible at least, that she's referring to her son being a Nazarite. You can read about that in number six. And what Hannah's saying to God is something significant. I mean, it, it almost makes you feel, well, Hannah, why are you going through this whole rigmarole in the first place? You want a son, and then you're going to give him back to God. So then you're not going to have a son again. It's very interesting. All she wants is children. And when she gets one, something, a a son that she's been yearning for and pining for. I mean, how many hours of sleep did she lose? And how many prayers were offered up? How many gallons of tears did she cry? 
And then when she gets this son, she's going to give him back to God. Hannah's not saying, Lord, if you give me a son, then I'll put a quarter in the offering. I'll be nice to the next person I see down the street. I mean, she's offering up something significant. She isn't playing God for a fool. I remember when I was a kid, my siblings often still resent the fact that I did this. But I was the oldest son, oldest child. It's so easy to take advantage of your younger siblings, you know? And I look out here, and, uh, you know, there's some sets of siblings here. Not that this ever goes on in our house. But, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'll give you this great thing, and you give me that dumb thing that you got, right? And then they'd give me something that's, like, really valuable, and I'd give them something of mine that was, like, not valuable. That's not what Hannah's doing. Hannah's not tricking God here, playing God for a fool. Well, Lord, you give me this great and wonderful thing, and then I'll give you something that's completely insignificant. No. If, Lord, you do this, then I will give you this. Now, why does she vow? I think this is probably the most important question we could ask. Why does she vow? And first, it's because she seriously cares. She seriously cares. This was not something that did not matter to her. This is the only part of her prayer that's mentioned. God doesn't record her whole prayer. He he records only the vow, probably because this is the climax of her prayer. God is highlighting this vow This is what God was working to get out of her. Her prayers were not enough. God needed her to vow. And listen, talk about your mom picking out your career for you, right? Here she's saying, God, I'm going to give him back to you. Although it was really God picking out Samuel, of course. She knows how seriously God takes vows, and she wants to get God's attention. It's as as if Hannah's saying, Lord... I cannot afford to walk away from here without knowing that I have obtained your full attention and that you're going to do for me what I ask you to do for me. You see, just as seriously as God takes a vow, Hannah was taking it just as seriously. Just as seriously. She was dead serious. I will give him back to you. I'm not playing around. And that's why she resorted to this. She didn't enter into this lightly. But first, she seriously cared, but secondly, because she was not scared to vow. Somebody might be like, well, Hannah, I don't know, do you really want to vow that vow? Like, think about this. Like, just pray. Don't vow. Just pray. Because it's going to be really hard when you have that son to give him up. Remember, taking a vow is not something to take lightly. Why not just pray and leave it at that? That you really need to vow. After all, what she's agreeing to is a lot. I wonder if she was scared at all. But maybe she wasn't scared to vow because just as badly as she wanted something from God, she wanted to give something to God. Maybe to her, the fact that giving up her son wasn't, and this might be revolutionary for some of you, maybe that wasn't actually going to be the great trial that we might think it was going to be. Maybe as a redeemed child of God, she wanted nothing more than to give God that which she valued and treasured the most. And she's like, Lord, you give me this, and I will want nothing more than to give him back to you. It will be my delight, my joy to give him back to you. Maybe just as badly she wanted God to do something for her, she wanted to do something for God. Her desire for a child was outweighed only by her desire 
for God's glory. In other words, this is not somebody saying, I'm going to use God to get what I want. It's somebody who's going to use God to give God what he deserves. So don't look at this whole thing of vows as, okay, I really want this from God, and so I can kind of maneuver the situation and vow and he'll... No, this is not a woman who's just trying to get something from God. This is a woman who wants to give something to God. Now, as we come to application, and you have the points in your handout, there's no command to vow. So I cannot stand here with the authority of the Lord and say, you need to go vow. I can't do it. There's no command to vow. I cannot bind your consciences. All I can say is this. There are examples of vows in the Old Testament and New Testament. There are commands regarding vows. And vowing in and of itself is never put in a bad light, generally. I mean, people made some bad vows. Um, the people who vowed not to eat. <laughs> you, you can make a foolish vow. You've got to think about what you're doing. There were the people who vowed not to eat until Paul was dead, right? They put themselves under an oath. I think it was, I think it was a vow. I think it was a vow. It's like, well, I wonder if they just died. Because they never got them. But vowing the, the, the vows of God's people, they're never put in a bad light. So the conclusion seems to be, vowing should be a continued part of the experience of the church, even today. In some measure. In some capacity. In some function. It might not be for everyone. But is it for no one? One man says this. Perhaps we, as Reformed Baptists, have not taught and emphasized the legitimate place of making vows to the Lord. And I don't think that's, def- I don't think that's confined to Reformed Baptists. I mean, we have, we have a paragraph in our Confession of Faith about vows. It's assuming that people are going to still be making vows. Maybe, my dear friend, brother and sister in Christ, the time will come for you to make a vow. Maybe not for the person next to you. Maybe not your parents, your spouse, or your friend, but you. There's going to come a time when you're like Hannah, and you know this is the next step. This is what needs to happen. I don't know what those circumstances would be. I'm sure Hannah didn't know earlier on in her life that this is what would drive her when they should be making a vow to God. And I don't get the sense that Hannah was making vows left and right all over the place. This might have been the only vow she ever made. If that time comes, will you be ready? But let me ask this question, because this gets part of the heart of why Hannah made the vow. Do you care enough about anything to make a vow? The only way Hannah was making the vow is because of her deep, heartfelt desire for a child. If you don't care about anything significantly when it comes to the kingdom of God, you're not making a vow. You've got to really care. You have to really be concerned. So let me ask you this. How earnestly do you pray? Because if you're not praying earnestly, there's no way that you're going to be making a vow. You just don't care enough. And this is a challenge to us. If we're not wrestling, agonizing in prayer to God about certain things that are pleasing to his will, then there's no way we're going to care enough to make a vow. You've got you to really care to make a vow. Hannah's vow was preceded by earnest prayer. And let me ask you this. Is God more serious about vows than you are about anything you'd vow about? Maybe your spiritual life. And you'd say, you know what? I'm not going to vow. I'm not going to vow that I do this in my spiritual life for God because 
then I'm really binding myself. I'm really putting myself in a hole, and, and I know God's going to hold me to it. So I better not, I better not make a vow I'm not going to keep it. And it's, at the end of the day, you just don't care enough about your spiritual life, about the kingdom of God, other issues that pertain to the kingdom of God. You would say, well, you know, listen, I'm not that serious. I really care, but I'm not that serious. Hannah was that serious. And if you're going to make a vow, you've got to be that serious about it. Because I'm warning you, you cannot enter into a vow unless you're committed to keep it. And maybe you just don't care enough about spiritual things. Maybe you don't care enough to give something back to God. Why don't you vow? Is it because you really don't want to give something to the Lord? Or you, or you don't want to do something for the Lord that is significant? Hannah wanted to give something to God. She wanted to give something because she wanted God to be glorified. It wasn't selfish. As we close, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 19 speaks about the performing of a vow was an indication of the presence of God-honoring religion among the people. So we read in Isaiah 19, I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. Isaiah chapter 19, beginning of verse 18, we read this. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. So here you have these people. They're they're devoted to God. They're swearing allegiance to God. They're owning God as their God. They're committing their ways to him. One of these will be called the city of destruction. And that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. They're worshiping God. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Now I find this interesting because you have a people here. They're swearing by the Lord of hosts. They're erecting a place of worship. They're praying. They're engaging in worship. And associated with all of this, they're making a vow to God. You see, the the vowing wasn't disconnected from their worship in their life. And maybe one of the reasons that you're not vowing is because you're not a worshiper of God. You're not someone who's praying to God. You're not owning God as your God and the God of hosts. Why, Why in the world did you make a vow to God? You don't care about him. And it reminds me of the sailors in Jonah's story. They made vows of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Because God had done something amazing for them. And if God hasn't done something amazing for you, maybe your heart wouldn't be stirred to make a vow to him. But dear brethren and brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it true that we above all people are those who have been the gracious beneficiaries of God's amazing salvation? God has done something far beyond what the sailors in Jonah's day experienced. We haven't just been delivered from 
a storm and dying at sea. We've been delivered from eternal punishment, from experiencing the wages of sin forever and ever. We have reason to be grateful to God. We have, we have a good reason, if the Lord would put it upon our hearts, to make a vow. Well, may God help us to understand what he has to say about vows and to help us seriously care about important things like Hannah cared and be prepared, if it is our time, to make a vow to God. Amen. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess you have done amazing things for us. Things beyond description. Wonderful things. And Lord, it's not because we asked you to or we told you that unless you do those things, we're going to worship you. No, the opposite was a fact. We were opposed to you when we were against you and we were fighting you. And yet, Lord, in your grace, you turned our hearts. You made us willing in the day of your power and you... You delivered us from all of our enemies and from our sins and from death. And we pray that you would help us to be deeply concerned about those things that you are deeply concerned about. Lord, we know that we're not called upon, we're not commanded to make a vow. But we ask that the absence of vows in our life, if nothing else, would not be an indication that we don't care about Christ, that we don't care about his kingdom that we don't care about your glory, that we don't care about our spiritual condition before you. No, Lord, may we care deeply about these things. And may those cares and concerns be, be recognized in the agony that we spend before your throne in prayer. And Lord, we ask that as the time ever comes where it would be proper, it would be God-honoring, it would be appropriate to make a vow to you, that you would be pleased to strengthen us in that day, that we would make an appropriate vow, that we would make a God-honoring vow, that we would not be selfish in the vow, but that we would be directed uh, to give back to you that which is your due, and that you would enable us by your Spirit to carry out what we have vowed and to do it speedily. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.